Think of the difference between an iPhone video and a Sundance film. Camera audio versus a studio track. A novice or someone with experience. Sure, each has their place, but which will have maximum impact? Summer Shower Productions, a black-owned, woman-owned production company built to create valuable and inspirational content for you. Whether it's a promotional video, a short film, interviews, event photography, or utilizing our extensive editing and post-production tools to take your already captured content to the next level. We always bring creativity, integrity, and passion to every project we produce. So, consider Summer Shower Productions for your next project. Let's build something great together. It's your boy again, back in the building. Dr. Sean Thomas here, episode 50. 50 of the Be More Today show. We're back, we're back, we're back in the building. And 50 is a big number, folks. It is 50 episodes we've done for this show since the beginning of last year. And I'm excited. Uh, the Be More Today movement is continuing to grow and continuing to move forward with all-star guests who are ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And the whole purpose of this movement is to recognize that we can do great things. Um, I don't care who you are, what you do where you've been, your history, your past, whatever, uh, you can be great and you can influence the world in various ways. And that's the whole point of be more today from the beginning of my book and our music on Amazon and our workouts. It's all about making sure you're inspired to keep pushing forward to be the best version of you. And uh, we are now heard in 32 countries and it's been awesome seeing the progression of this show and of this movement be more today. So for all those who've been out there supporting us in various ways, either on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or liking stuff, whatever. I appreciate you. I salute you. Thank you so much for your love and support. It really means a lot. And uh, we will continue to push forward, continue to put out good content for you and continue to uh, keep this movement going. I think it's great for us to do great things in this time period for this uh, time period for our lives. So um, the quotation for today is very simple as always. It is from Malcolm X. And he said, the future belongs to those who prepare for it today. And my guest on the show today embodies that. He's someone I've known for a very long time. Uh, and he embodies what it means to uh, look towards the future, but to put work in today. Uh, he's prepared himself to do great things, even when I met him uh, at Brown University back in the day. And he is none other than my brother, my friend, Eldridge Gilbert. Now, Eldridge Gilbert graduated from Brown University, Bruno, you know, in 2005, with a bachelor's degree in Africana Studies and Psychology. Following Brown, I joined Teach for America and worked in Houston for 11 years. During that time, he earned his MBA from the Jones School of Business at Rice University. And while in Houston, L worked for Yes Prep Public Schools and was a founding school director principal of Yes Prep North Forest, a 6th to 12th grade campus of 850 students for six years. After leaving Houston, L worked as the managing director of schools at Kip Bay Area Public Schools. And for two years, he coached, developed, and managed eight principals. Eldridge currently lives in Brooklyn, New York, and serves as the chief schools officer for Coney Island Prep Schools while coaching principals for the Kip Foundation. He is currently the president of the Emmon Page Black Alumni Council. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, pets included, please welcome to the stage my friend, my longtime friend, and my brother, Eldridge Gilbert. L, what is going on? 
Not too much, Sean. How you doing? <laughs> Man, I'm good, L. I'm good because I'm back with you. You know, you and I have a um, a long time history. You know, we ran track together. Um, you know, my my senior year and your your freshman year. Um, it's it's just oh, my, actually, my senior in your in your my my sophomore year, my junior year, and your freshman year. Sorry, and um, you know, looking at the progression from you from then to now. It's incredible. Um, you know, I, I got to say, just before we even get started, I, I always saw and have always seen you as someone who's been a leader um, since the day you worked on campus. You walked on campus like gangbusters. You walked on campus like this is mine. And um, I, I, I embraced that. And, I, and I, I, I remember seeing you do so many things in terms of inspiring other people to whatever you did, people were doing it. Like if you would have put your hand in the air, 10 people put had their hands in the air, you know, just because it was you and you just had this, this infectious charisma about you that you could inspire and engage people and encourage them to do anything, whether it meant going for runs, you know, on the track or whether it meant doing advocacy work on the campus. You were that guy who just had people around him all the time doing things that were productive and successful and and community-based, and, you know, it's just, it's no surprise to me looking at your bio and your journey from where you were to where you are now, what you've done to uh, influence so much change in the school system and in the community. I'm just really impressed by you. So just welcome on the show, Redren. It's been a great, great experience watching your growth, and I'm happy that you're here. I'm really happy to be here, and uh, I, I, I was copying you for a good two of those years at Brown, so uh, that that's that's uh, due to big big brother influence, uh, Captain Sean Thomas. Uh, you had a huge influence on me, so thanks thanks for saying that. But uh, I was copying copying you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you at all, but um, <laughs> I appreciate the sentiments. Um, so, oh, you know, you and I ran track together. Um, you know, you were. Sprint track was jumper. We had many times on the track sharing experiences and mutual friends and, you know, both being, you know, black men at Brown. Um, so that experience by itself is a thing. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But I just want to know how you're doing. Uh, I know you're in Brooklyn now with me. And I actually, I saw you on the street uh, <laughs> when I was driving, you were walking. So that's the only that I actually knew you were in Brooklyn. Um, but how are you doing? How's, how's life? How's COVID-19 and the whole quarantine madness, Zoom madness, been treating you, uh, you know, as, as an educator at this time? Yeah, um, doing well. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been a crazy, like, I can't believe it's been a year of all this, right? Um, before that, Brooklyn has been good to me. I am, I'm enjoying being back on the East Coast. I've had like a little bit of a journey to get back to the East Coast. Uh, but it's been dope other than the cold. <laughs> uh, but but New York has been a, like a really welcoming place, like professionally and personally. It's been great to like reconnect, like to just randomly see you walking down the street <laughs> was like the joy. Of, I think it was a Sunday. I was like leaving church. It's like, oh, that shot. Like that that kind of experience I get to have here um, has definitely made it sweet to be back on the East Coast. Um, but with COVID stuff, man, it's just, it's been stressful as an educator. Um, I manage uh, principals, so it's been hard to figure out what's the right mix of being supportive of, of both students and staff and families, and then trying to do school and make sure that it's not like a waste of time for kids and families, and, you know, kind of grappling with this idea of kids being, of like losing time, being left behind, like there's so many um, pieces of 
uh, our work and education has been challenged by COVID, including like just some of our long held beliefs about what it what school is supposed to do and what it means to be successful in school. So I'm excited for what's going to be on the other side of this, but it's been um, it's been pretty stressful. I will say, though, that like I've been blessed in that my role has allowed me to go to campus. So our schools are completely virtual just for the safety of kids and families. Um, but I've gone on campus, like distribute food to families because as a public school, we have to do that. Um, and just like work the front, we gave out laptops and like, um, my fives and things to families. And so having the opportunity to engage with people in that way has been a lifesaver for me. And so I've been really grateful to have a reason to get out the house and a reason to engage with grateful people and to give back in such a um, crazy time. So COVID is the worst, but it has had some, some bright spots that have um, made it a little bit more bearable for me as a person. That's great. That's fantastic. I know a lot of people have been relegated to their homes, but I'm glad that you're actually so being able to go out there and engage with people and staff members. And um, you know, I knew you were African studies at major at school. And actually, looking back, I've said this on a number of other shows. I wish I had studied African studies. I wish I had majored in that. Um, at this point in my life, right now, you know, as I'm about to be 40 soon, I, I look back and I say, you know, I really wish. I love psychology, I, you know, I love the, the medical stuff as well, but to, to, to be able to know more about our history and to study it, um, as opposed to it being thrown at you, you know, whenever it can be thrown at you in school, it's just different. And I, I wish I had really taken advantage of studying that while at Brown. Um, but you did study that, you were, that was your major, you minor psychology. What from that study um, motivated you to go towards the Teach for America route? Yeah, I think it was um, it was the obligation piece. So you you can't study Africana studies um, and be and my family is are like are my family is like educators as well um, and not kind of feel drawn to ways to give back to the community and to like to the legacy of people who made it possible for you to be in that space. So uh, I wouldn't have been at Brown if it weren't for black educators and like both in my family and, and folks that I don't know and have no knowledge of. Right. Um, and so. And then I just, I learned so much about myself through Africana studies. So, you know, I, I knew I was black, but then there were like layers that I was like uncovering about myself through like this academic process I was going through. And then there was so much to the black diaspora, to the African diaspora that I had was really limited in knowledge of. I think when I got to undergrad, it was like the first time that I really explored like Afro-Caribbean culture and people and like the, you know, the ways in which we are as, as an African-American similar and like dissimilar and, and, and really broaden my horizons in terms of what it meant to be a black person in this, um, in this world. And so I wanted to give that back, um, that joy and that curiosity, that knowledge and that like push that you need to be a better person. Um, and so that's why the Teach for America, when I was, <laughs> they were, their tagline at the time was like, education is a civil rights movement of our generation or something like that. Um, and that grabbed me. <laughs> so as cheesy as it sounds now, and, I, and I'm glad that I did education. I'm glad I did Teach for America. Um, but that's, and then my good friend Chaz, well, Chaz was like in it. He was doing Teach for America. He knew that that was his thing. He kind of pulled me and my other like really good friend Dwight in along the way. I was like the third one. I followed them into it. But it was all rooted in um, this idea for me of like giving back to people who look like me. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's how I ended up doing Teach for America. And, and Africana Studies was a huge part of that. Um, just knowing that people had poured into me the past four years and for many years before that. And so it was my opportunity to kind of 
pour back into to, to, to young people. Yeah, shout out to Chaz and Dwight, uh, class of five members as well. Um, you know, I, I know that you have done the Africana Studies route and Teach for America, but you also have mentioned in your bio that you earned your MBA in the process. Now, a lot of people, you know, stick to one thing and they stay on that one. But again, this just speaks to what I said earlier about you being someone who um, is a go-getter, trendsetter. Um, while doing Teach for America, you earned your MBA. What sparked that? And how difficult or challenging was it for you to do both those things at the same time? Oh, my MBA was terrible. <laughs> it was so hard. Um, uh, I did, so I, it was a, it was like a bunch of things coming together at once. So they were, Rice was with um, uh, this entity in Houston, um, uh, like the Houston Endowment was collaborating for this new project where they wanted educators and future ed leaders to get the skills that are um, given to you through an MBA. And so how do we prepare like this next generation of school leaders to think not like not to run schools like a business, but to have like that kind of mindset that business leaders have. And in Houston, like that's not a big surprise that you would be like, oh, so these oil execs do this really well. What does that have to offer the education community? Um, so I was in the first cohort of the REAP program, which is the Rice Educational Entrepreneurship Program. Um, so like seven of us who did the MBA while we were still working. Uh, so I was doing that in that was my first year as a dean of students. So I was like a VP essentially a vice principal and in that program and then I became a principal right right after I left it right after I graduated so it was crazy hard um an MBA all the parts of the MBA like macroeconomics and microeconomics and accounting I was like this is not my I'm, I'm, I'm a paper writer I can write papers like give me something like that um so that's where I thrived <laughs> but the other parts of it were just really challenging and it was a it was a very different way to work um and to look at the world and look at the way that people um, engage in the world, uh, but I, I'm really grateful for it. I don't think I, I, I left with a lot of lessons around leadership, a lot of lessons around strategy and kind of building up a team and, and like some critical thinking skills that I don't think I would have gotten had I done a traditional education, a master's in education. Uh, so it was dope, but it was really hard. <laughs> I would not go back. That's for sure. I mean, I'm sorry, sorry. Now, the fact that you even went through that at all, um, I'm always impressed by it. And I, I don't know how many people would uh, pursue doing those kind of things while still teaching, you know, because I, I, they're, they're two different things, right? You're talking about what you're doing in the classroom, then like a whole different uh, subset, like a whole different like, mindset. Um, how have you found ways to combine the two passions for you now, the business and, and, and the teaching it? Yeah, I think um, that's a really good question. At, at the time, it didn't make a lot of sense. I think the the parts, yeah, the parts that we were going through when I that were work applicable didn't they didn't have like a place for for my for my for me and my job. Um, there were like some sprinklings around, like I said, like leadership, leading a team of people, but definitely not. It, it didn't feel applicable to my day to day. It felt more, much more helpful afterwards. Um, and when I became a principal and um, like doing root cause analysis and trying to figure out like what's at the heart of an issue or what are the goals and like the ways to track towards a goal and motivate people to get on board. And, you know, how can you, how can you kind of um, progress monitor and then change shift? And those were all really applicable to my life as a principal. 
Uh, and so that was really helpful. But when I first got out, um, it didn't seem helpful. Now I still lean on it. So I do print some like principal and like leadership consulting alongside my my regular job, which is more like problem solving for a school district and being a part of, you know, how do we how do we do COVID? Right. Uh, so that's that feels different than like the consulting work that I do. But in terms of like the the overlay of business, there there's a lot of similarities. So there's a lot of critical thinking and question asking and probing that I do in the consulting work that when I apply it to my job, I think I get better results out of the principles that I like manage and evaluate. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of strategy related to how we how we do COVID. And so we can talk about all the problems, but trying to narrow down to like, well, what's the what's the one thing that's in our locus of control that we can work on? And then how do we, you know, how do we create a path to success and redefine that? Those are ways of thinking that I definitely got from the NBA. <laughs> um, the way that business leaders think through stuff. And so, and that's not usually how educators are encouraged to think, right? We kids are the bottom line, it's all heart, it's all, you know, this is a noble profession. Yeah, but it's also uh we are doing like some business work. We are critical thinkers. We are problem solvers. And the kid and the heart stuff lives alongside that. The social justice element of that lives alongside it. But we have to be thoughtful and intentional in a way that I don't think you're always taught to be. So so now those two things live together and feel very meshed, um, but not not during, <laughs> not during at all. It's funny you mentioned that because, you know, as a physical therapist, you know, I, I know how to do stuff physically, right? When it comes to the health stuff, when people get hurt, that kind of stuff, I got it. But as a director, you know, you're, I'm thrown into this system now where, yes, I'm still treating, but what I'm doing now more is like you're talking about management, KPIs, looking at numbers, looking at, uh, you know, insurances and trying to figure out cost analysis and that kind of stuff. You don't learn that kind of stuff in school. No. Um, so, you know, I think you taking that route for the NBA uh, was a brilliant one because now you're able to apply like like everything else. School's a business, right? Physical therapy is a business. We, we talk about not being those things, but even churches, you know, those are businesses in a sense. So um, money does have to come in. It has to be managed and people have to be managed. So you having that experience and that background to apply what you learn from the NBA to the teaching realm gives you even more power, I think, and even more of a savvy to, to know what um, and how to manage people and how to manage things and funds appropriately to be even more successful. Um, I think that most people should do MBAs, uh, especially if you're in any kind of like financial-based um, environment. Uh, and I wish I had, you know, taken some more MBA class. I remember taking an economics class that it wasn't that brown. It was in high school, and I was so bad at it. <laughs> it's like so bad, but you know, recognizing that these things are going to be so important to you to use, especially depending on what role you're in, like yours and mine, in terms of dealing with people and dealing with money and finances and what have you. Need to have that background to run things well. Yeah. And um, I think it was great that you saw the 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 well the intuition you had to take the MBA during that, the Teach America stint was, was, was genius because it just makes you a better person in the end. Yeah, thanks. That makes me feel really smart right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then you got involved with the, the Yes Prep public schools and I'm curious, to, I'm always curious what leads people to become principals. My mom is an AP and she does education work with, with other teachers, but um, being a principal is a very specific role. So what led you from Teach of America Right. Where you were like, oh, my friends do not hop in there to be a principal <laughs> in that same regard. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> that, that's a good question. Um, 
part of it is because I have a big mouth. Um, we were, <laughs> we, my second year teaching, we, I was working for, a, so slightly weird path. I was, um, New Orleans core 2005 was my teach America placement. And so after a week of teaching hurricane Katrina hit, and that's how I ended up in Houston. And so because I was in Houston, uh, they didn't have like a placement for us because there were like 80 of us. And so they gave us the option to like be a part of a charter, a charter school for New Orleans evacuees in Houston. And after that first year, I was like, this is terrible. I'm terrible, but I'm going to fulfill this commitment. And so I joined another charter network and that it's so the first one was actually Kip. And then who I then 10 years later worked for again and work for now. But the second one that I joined was Yes Prep, who then I worked for for 10 years when I was in Houston. And at like an event, I think I was with our founder. I was saying, because and this is the big mouth part of me, like we had four schools at the time. None of them, only one of them was in a predominantly black area in Houston. And I was like, we have a really great system. We need to serve more black kids. I want to be a principal. I want to be a school director of like one of our, our campuses in a black neighborhood. And he was like, I'm sure that he didn't take me really seriously, but we were also small and I'm, I was young. So maybe he took me kind of seriously. And so then like over the course of the next couple of years, like I did well, like I was a good teacher. I ended up, I mean, I was a good teacher. I enjoyed teaching. I like kids. I didn't realize any of that beforehand, but I was a pretty good teacher. Um, I transitioned into the role of Dean of Students, which is like culture manager um, of, of the school. And so that's like the assistant principal role I was describing. And then from there, there was an opportunity to apply to be the principal of our next school, our eighth campus at the time. Um, and uh, I went through the process and I was selected to be that leader. And then so we had two, there was one black neighborhood in Houston that I was pretty sure we we're going to open and we ended up opening in a different black neighborhood, which was ultimately like where I was supposed to be because nothing happens by accident or coincidence. Um, but yeah, it was, it was mostly my big mouth getting me into trouble. And then I think being, being committed to, to a belief that what we had to offer was important to have uh, black families in Houston have the opportunity to take advantage of. I mean, Houston's huge and there's like, and we were serving a lot of Latinx families and that was really important. And I loved that we were doing that. I also felt like we had lots of black families in Houston who then weren't getting that same opportunity. And so it was important that we um, create that open schools where that was going to be more of a possibility as well. Mm. That's huge. And, uh, you know, I'm a big supporter of nothing happens by accident. So, I, you know, for all those things that happened for you means that that was probably exactly where you're supposed to be. Um, and even looking at your experience with Kip in the Bay Area, now I love California, but Houston and Cali are very different. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> right. So what was the experience you transitioning from the Houston um, experience to the, the Bay Area? Uh, it was really different. Um, <laughs> the Bay, I love the Bay. I, I'm pretty sure I'll be back in the Bay at some point. I love living in the Bay. Um, but yeah, from the weather, like I moved in July. It was like, it's like triple degrees in Houston in July. It was cold in the Bay. It was like 65, like some... Uh, uh, Indian summer thing. I was glad I was dying. I was like, this is freezing. Um, but I loved it. And the diversity in the Bay is so different. It's so much smaller people. Are, I lived in Oakland, you know, you have just like a huge smattering of so much difference all the time. Like it, it was great. Um, but the challenges are also really different than Houston by comparison. You would think that, you know, Houston's a very new city. It's got like, you know, it's got money and Southern poverty is very different than like West coast, 
poverty and um, the conditions of the majority of like black and brown people in the Bay is just really different than what it looks like in Houston on a day-to-day basis. Um, and so that was hard. The striking difference in homelessness was like jolting to me. Um, you can't walk around in San Francisco and Oakland without kind of, and you know, in some ways, like you're walking over people who, who are homeless and like that just wasn't the case in Houston. Um, so there was like good and bad, um, and it was, but it was very sobering. Um, I think I still, like I said, I would go back to the Bay. Like I love it there. I was born there. I feel a lot of pull to be in that space. It was very sobering leaving Houston where it felt like um, people for the most part are doing well. Like I knew my school and, but it wasn't like when you're in downtown or when you're out and about, you see rampant people just like not doing well or, or not having their needs not met. And that is much more on um, at the forefront of the my Bay Area experience. Um, you know, you have the experience of like Black people in particular being pushed out of the Bay Area because they can't afford to live there. And then you've got, you know, gentrification of of neighborhoods in San Francisco and Oakland by like younger white people who can come in and just like, you know, you're working in tech or you're working, you know, Google and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And you can afford to like raise the rent. I mean, it was just it was very, very different, Um, but uh, two valuable experiences for sure. And, And I haven't had enough of the Bay yet, so. Yeah, no, I forgot you're from Cali. I uh, I just completely forgot that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I love the Bay too. And uh, even going from the Bay Area back to New York is a transition because, again, New York has its own set of uh, great things in terms of diversity and also like crazy things in terms of diversity. Especially <laughs> living in Brooklyn, which is the melting pot of all kinds of things. Yeah. And now you being the chief officer of Coney Island Schools, what does your coaching entail? Uh, for other principals and how do you prepare them for um, the challenges that you face in New York? Um, yeah, New York is really different than the Bay. Uh, a lot of similarities, but different. Uh, I think my support of uh, principals in the principals here um, is more about navigating the diversity. There's a lot of stuff that's different. One of them is uh, navigating the diversity in DEI space. So in New York, in Brooklyn, in Coney Island, like where our schools are, you've got a lot of uh, you got a lot of difference um, living on top of each other, but they're kind of, I feel like um, our families can live in like these separate tracks and like not really interact with each other across lots of the differences. So like I'm comfortable with people who don't look like me, who don't speak the same language as me, but I'm not necessarily like sharing a life experience with them. And so then when we get into schools, that's like where those things kind of hit. Um, and so especially in the wake of, you know, the last summer and and the pandemic, um, issues of equity uh, come up a lot, come up differently now. And so we're doing, I feel like I spent a lot of time, good time, like time that I love navigating those challenges of being in a diverse environment and trying to meet people both where they are and move us, collect, create community, and then move us collectively towards something better. Um, you know, New York has interesting, New York as a state has interesting rules with special education. Uh, and so it's very different. The system is very, operates very differently than California and then in Texas. And so um, there's a lot of navigating that. Um, and, and I think the, one of the big pieces is, is like discipline and care. So on the West Coast, I th- there's, a, um, there's a tendency to like lean really far away from like management and control of like kids and bodies right so you can do what you want like we you know it's it, right like this is the same way that you feel like the east coast is like kind of like oh or the west coast is like 
you know, kind of hippie. And that that leans even into like how charter schools are made up and like with the rules and ways in which we expect kids to behave. It's actually really different on the on the East Coast. And so there's a lot more control of bodies, which I and um, rigid, more rigid expectations. So my schools uh, that, I, you know, my principals were like navigating that and changing some of those things because it's not the way that we should be treating kids and and things of that nature. Um, and that's not the only route to get results, but we're having to navigate those differences, um, especially when I first got here. It's, it's different now. Um, we're, we're much more aligned now. Uh, but some of those things, like removing some like harsh consequences for things that like we wouldn't give harsh consequences for um, in the Bay Area or in Texas, like trying to figure that out on uh, from on the East Coast has been a challenge. Um, yeah. And just raising the bar of instruction, which is, uh, it, it just, it, it's just different because New York is, it, New York is so different than what people expect in the Bay. And again, different than in Houston as well. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, lots of, lots of question asking. Cause I'm not, I didn't go to school in New York like, and I wasn't a principal here. So I have to ask questions and probe and then, um, engage and invest my principals in something different. Uh, because yeah, like people don't, res- people like to, people don't respond well to being, necessarily told what to do. And so I try not to, not to do that as much as possible. So people want to go in the direction that, that I think is best for us to go in together. What's the general demographic of the, um, I guess, first the students and then the teachers that you're engaging with? Yeah. So we have four schools. Um, They are, our elementary school is crazy diverse. Like I've never been in a more diverse school. We're in, uh, we're in Coney Island. Well, we're a little outside of Coney Island, I think, between Bensonhurst and, and another neighborhood. I think it's it's not Bath Beach, but I can't think of the name of it. Um, but it's super diverse. We've got like a lot of like Asian, East Asian immigrant children, lots of um, lots of black and brown like Latinx kids, um, and then we've got like Russian immigrant students. Uh, so it is just it's one of the reasons why I took the job is it was the most diverse school I've ever been in. Um, and so we see that kind of diversity of students um, follow itself into our middle school setting, um, where it's 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 still diverse. It's not as diverse as our elementary schools. Some of um, uh, the East Asian families that we work with seem to not follow us to the middle school. Um, and then our high school, <clears throat> this is the first year that our high school will be predominantly Latinx. In the past, has been predominantly Black. Um, and so a lot of, again, like when I was, when we first started, there were very, like a handful of like those East Asian families who chose to be with us, like a, a really small number of like the um, white immigrant families or European immigrant families who chose to be with us at the high school. So the pipeline is super diverse in elementary school and then gets somewhat less diverse, but we'll see how that changes over time. Um, our teaching staff, though, is a different story. Um, our teaching staff is now we're like 50 per, across all four schools, we're like 50% uh, folks of color and 50% white, but that has not always been the story. And that's not the same at all of our campuses. So our high school is still a predominantly white teaching staff. Um, the middle school is a predominantly black teaching staff. And then it's like, it's, you know, it's a, it gets a little diverse in the two elementary schools. Um, but our teaching staff across, across the board doesn't necessarily look like the students that we serve. Hmm. I'm just curious, cause you know, my, my daughter is in kindergarten now, and I, I also didn't go to school in the city. I went to school mostly outside of the city and then, you know, high school in Connecticut and Brown with you, clearly. Um, but just looking at the different schools that are in New York, every school is different. Uh, depending on what location you're in, every school, every district is different. Even looking at the teaching staff for these schools, it can vary. We're looking at 
some of the kindergarten schools for her, there were some schools that had um, a very diverse teaching population, but all of their students were not. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you would go to some schools where the kids were just so diverse up to a certain age, like you said, like either you know K through five was super diverse, and after that it was very very uh, of the same of the same race. Uh, so it's interesting how these things um, shifts based on location, based on the schools. Uh, and I'm always curious now, uh, as you're an educator, and again, Africana Studies was your was your major, and you've been through all these different things, Teach for America, and at this place now where you're teaching principals and teaches how to teach. When it comes to history, when it comes to what's being taught in these books, um, how are you able to um, share information that's not always in the books, right? When it comes to um, our history of people of color, um, the stories that are not always told in our classrooms, what have you done to help um, excite or uh, promote um, the proper education um, about our history that should be shared with our students uh, and your staff. Yeah, um, that's a that's a good and a, a difficult question. I don't think I do enough. <laughs> um, we have. I'm not our. So I work really closely with our chief academic officer, and he has taken on um, creating or identifying a new history curriculum for us to use as a network because the history curriculums that we've had in the past haven't done, I think, as jo- as good of a job as we would like. Haven't met our standards for sharing a diverse. Um, set of historical perspectives and experiences like with our kids. Um, and so we, we, we've been, he's been working really hard on that. I've been really supportive. Um, that's something like when we go into classrooms, we ask, you know, and do observations, like we're asking kids about what we're looking for in our observations, talking to the teachers about the, the vice principals who coach them, like, hey, how are you infusing like a diverse perspective um, and teaching kids that like, this is one perspective of this story, but like, how are we widening their scope to say like well, what are the other points of views and I think we're trying to get to the point where we um decenter like a white narrative with respect to historical events and so this didn't just happen from the you know from the gaze of of white people what are you know let's talk about it only from perspectives of like a person of color or a woman and see what lessons our kids gain from that and how they connect with it different so it's an ongoing conversation I would say like some tangible things that I do um, I'm on like the 1619 like listserv. And so whenever they have professional development opportunities and things of that nature, I share it back with our vice principals who manage like history. So that they're able to go out and see, are there other resources that they can be, you know, work, like visit with, um, explore, and then take into like their classrooms. I worked with, uh, Professor Bogues, uh, at Brown on, um, did like really minor consulting on like the history textbook that they did. This is so awkward because like, I actually have this next to me, but like, so they did one from the Center of Slavery and Justice. Um, and so like using this, you know, using this as a resource in our schools, like that felt like I was in a TV show. And I was like, so by the way, and it's just <laughs> this is like just at my desk, but you know, what are all the ways, what are all the resources that exist and how do we just infuse them um, first introduce them to like our teachers so that they have a bevy of places to choose from and then help them in their selection, like use the ones that are are well, really well done, well-researched, um, and then figure out how to best present them to kids, right? Because it's not just about, um, I think it's really important and maybe I think it's probably disproportionately important to represent like the black and brown experience, but those are not the only experiences that our kids need to be 
um, exposed to in schools. And so how do we make sure that every kid has an opportunity to kind of see themselves reflected in the history curriculum uh, that we give it? It's, 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 it's really hard, but um, I'm really glad to have a, like a great partner in our chief academic officer and from our, you know, our CEO, like th this is work that we want to prioritize. Um, and it's things that I tried to do when I was in the class, when I was a teacher, like try to teach Malcolm X. So I did, uh, I created my own, created my own, like led my own um, civil rights uh, unit with my kids where we watched Eyes on the Prize. So there are like, there are all these like small in routes that I've tried. And I think at this point in my career, it's not about me doing it. It's about empowering other people to do it for themselves. Cause that'll live on longer than if I'm like, well, here's like the set of lesson plans that you have to use. Uh, that doesn't change people's minds. It's got to be their experience and, and feel like it comes from them. So uh, we're, we're doing a lot of work to try to make that possible. Mm, that's powerful. You definitely are doing so much. And um, kudos to you and your team for continuing to uh, press forward and, and to push the boundaries, especially in New York with all these different schools you're working with. Um, and I know that you, outside of the school network, you do a lot of other things. Um, which is no surprise again, uh, since you were so active when you were at Brown. Uh, you're currently the president of the Inman Page Black Alumni Council. Um, just tell listeners what that council is and what your primary role is with the council. Yeah, uh, so Inman uh, Page Black Alumni Council, IPC, um, we exist, we were founded like 20 years ago. I feel like I got to give like a little bit of the history um, uh, to, to really create um, a set of experiences to to protect and enhance. Uh, that's that's the friends of Brown Track and Field. Uh, to to um, I guess those words are still applicable, but to enrich the experiences of Brown of Black alumni from Brown, um, current students, and then faculty and staff, like the the on the campus community. So um, our goal is really to provide whatever support programming, whatever it might be, that's going to make the lives of like the alum of black alum better and help connect them back to Brown um, in ways that help to, you know, enrich their lives, but also make the university a better place um, decade, de year after year, decade after decade and ensuring that IPC alum are like a part of the university. Uh, and so we have, uh, you know, we've got lots of folks who <laughs> volunteer every year to help do that. Uh, my main role as president is to craft a vision and a strategy for how we can do that for the two years that I'm in the in the leader seat. And, you know, one of the one of the biggest things I think is on my plate is like, how do we get young alum involved and like make sure that they feel tapped into IPC and feel like they're part of a, 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 a community of black alumni from Brown and that they want to give back to the university, not just monetarily, but like volunteering or mentoring, whatever it might be. Um, and so I feel like that that's my job is to make sure that there's there's a there's a space for every every black alum in IPC and the work that we do um, and that that helps to foster a connection back with our alma mater. So that's that's the best I can do on the fly. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. It's, it's, it's come such a long way. I've seen the entire progression of it since you know I was there to now and you guys doing a fantastic job. Um, I also know you were featured uh, on the cover of Brown Alumni Magazine last year, and I have my own copy at home. Um, I, I'm curious, and I want you just to share with the listeners, um, you know, what, what sparked you being on the cover, and what story did you share in the magazine about uh, your experience at Brown? 
I do not know how I got chosen to be on the cover. I think it's because I'm president of ICC, but I don't know. Random, they just emailed me. <laughs> They're like, will you do this article? And I was like, sure. And then they said something about being on the cover. And I was like, uh-huh. <laughs> and then they followed up a couple of months later and like, there's going to be a photographer. I was very confused by it all because I thought it was thought it was just fun times, you know, jokes. Uh, but it was, uh, it was not. Uh, the story was really around my perspective as an educator around COVID and COVID and like the racial justice movement. So the interview happens, I want to say like right after things kind of blew up with George Floyd. Uh, and I say that because, you know, there are so many deaths of like black, um, black men and women at the hands of police, like unjustly recorded all that stuff for like the last several years. And I think COVID really made the space, you know, sadly, but like made the space with people not working to pay attention to what was happening with respect to racial justice, you know, in, in such a way that the Brown Alumni Magazine wanted to do like a story on it. So I was asked for my perspective about like, well, what should we be doing in schools? What are the conversations that, you know, a Black educator is thinking about or having in, the, in light of what's happening with racial justice movement um, in the U.S.? And so... Yeah, that was that was my story. I just kind of talked about, you know, being mad and not not being in a space to wait on my white friends, peers, colleagues, whatever, to 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 wake up to like these issues. Because as I just said, like George Floyd wasn't the first, and wasn't the last, like you know, and Breonna Taylor. Like none of that is new. That those are wrongs to our community that we are aware of. Summer after summer, decade, you know that it's not new, and so. I'm, I, you know, some of what I shared in the article, and I think they only like, you know, a small bit of it. I'm one of six people I think that they featured in it. But, um, you know, I, who has, to, we don't have time to like wait for you to have like this, this racial awakening that there's like injustice done to black and brown bodies. Like this is happening now. And from an educator standpoint, like we need to be talking about it in schools. We need to be doing the work with like teachers because you can do a lot of harm to people not just by, you know, you don't have to kill a black man or a black woman um, in order to do harm to the to the community. And there are ways in which educators do deep damage to black and brown kids every single day with what they say or don't say. And, you know, so there's there's so much of that when we don't have time to waste. Um, and we've been we stand on the shoulders of many black and black and brown men and women who have been like sounding this alarm for centuries. And so we can't, you know, their urgency of it all is kind of what I think they asked me to share. <laughs> um, and they included some in there. Yeah, well, I read the article. It was it was great. I was proud to see you on the cover. I was proud to read the article. Um, and I think it, it shows, you know, the, the uh, capacity for Brown, as always, to be a pillar for other schools to follow in terms of highlighting what's happening around the country and around the world. And even on its campuses, um, you know, even speaking of campus issues, you know, you've been really uh, pivotal in not just showing and sharing your story um, and your experience trying to uh, link former alumni or current alumni and current students at Brown, but also the the, the track and field program, especially for the men's program that was, um, and I've shared this on, on the show before, uh, that was, was cut. Um, for a moment and then reinstated. You were very pivotal though, Eldridge, in, in formulating uh, Zoom meetings for the team and 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 corralling alumni together to uh, build awareness of what was happening and to to raise funds uh, for the program. And you know, in the span of what seemed like it seemed like months, but it was really just weeks, 
um, of a turnaround where the school just kind of came around and, and really saw the progression and the family and the support that was around this team um, that was trying to separate the men's team from the, the women's team at, at school. Uh, as there have been cuts of, of Brown Jack and Field across the country for various programs, um, Brown was able to reinstate this program. And, and a lot of that was, you know, thanks to your support and, and your, your push for the team. So what was your experience, um, you know, engaging with the with the, the the team and with the alumni? You know, I, I had Coach Hunt on the show a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about it a little bit. But I'm curious about your experience, you know, as as someone who did run, uh, and as an alumni looking looking back now at what was has been happening, um, and still being in touch with the current students. What what was your experience with that entire uh, fiasco, and and how has has that changed in terms of how the team is doing right now? Yeah, um, it's it's really interesting because that all happened the, the same week, right? Like the team got cut the same week that George Floyd protests happened. And I remember I joined a call that, I mean, there are some really amazing young alum, Bryn Smith, uh, Jordan Mann. Like there were, there were people who were like, you know, real up in arms about it. And I joined a call and I was like, oh, they got it. Like <laughs> they got a whole plan. Like, let me, let me sign my name on some signature thing. Um, but really I got involved because for... Uh, black men from the team, uh, juniors, uh, reached out to the um, BCSC and were like, we need IPC, we want IPC support, we want black alumni to do something. And so because I was pregnant, they were like, so what are you going to do? <laughs> like, okay, so I guess like, I guess I have to help <laughs> in some kind of way. And it was, you know, it was in it, it, the track and field team was so important to me. I mean, pivotal, pivotal, pivotal coach. You're always going to be captain Sean to me. Like, I just can't like my big brother and my captain, like that's who that's, that's, that's what a huge part of my run experience. Uh, so I felt an obligation to kind of give back to the team. Cause I got a lot from the team when I was, when I was there. And so, um, it was really a powerful experience of, of reaching out to like the black alum from the team. Cause there's so many of us. And so many of us doing such dope, dope, dope things. And so it was nice to have a reason to, to you know, reach out to Antonio Kittles and like, like, oh, and Trinity and, and, and people beyond that, uh, uh, Joseph Bruno, like there are just so many great black men and women from the team. And so um, getting them, giving, providing another avenue to be involved in the advocacy for the team. So sending a letter to the president from black alumni that just, you know, that included not just people who ran on the team, but people, folks from Inman Page who are just outraged that there wouldn't be a men's track and field team and how, if there hadn't been a men's track and field team, what their black experience at Brown would have been like was amazing. Like there was such an outpouring of support. Um, and so it felt like this huge surge of like love and reconnections, not only, not only Brown, but like black people who are a part of Brown and a part of, you know, those shoulders again, that we stand on. So for me, it's felt like amazing. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have like an amazing track career. Like it was, it was fine. Like I did all right, but I would have liked to have done better, but this has kind of been a second go round of, of that almost to give back to the team in a more meaningful way as an adult um, and to get like a lot of love back. So uh, we now have like these monthly Zoom calls with black men from the team. There's like 10 or 15 men who show up kind of every time and just building community with current, like their current guys on the team who show up to the calls. And, you know, it's, it's, it's building community in a different sense. And the black women have something similar. And so um, it's just felt like a lot of love um, 
I think that's the best word I have for it is it's it's a new it's a new experience for me from I haven't you know been a part of like an athlete community since undergrad. And so to like have this now um, and to get to do some to some helping of like men on the team as they kind of navigate like grad school and, you know, staying at Brown and talking to the coaches has and, you know, having an event. We did a event called, you know, around the stand, which uh, uh, Tom Ratcliffe had created um, a documentary around the 1968 Olympics. And so we had that event and had one of the guys who I've been working with um, from, from the black, the, you know, from our, our group moderate the event, a current student. And it was just, this it is, it's just so nice to be able to feel like a part of that community, um, and ensure it's, it's growth. And it's definitely not me by myself. Like there's a whole host of people who make, um, a huge difference, um, in, in that work every day, but it's, it's fun. It's fun. It's fun to talk to undergrads. Um, and it's hilarious to talk to an older alum about their experience, both at Brown and, get in the mix with, with, with the undergrads. It's, it's, it's great. It's dope. Yeah. I well, again, I, I, I too was outraged when I heard the news and I was excited to reconnect with so many people. And like you said, it just brings back so many memories of connections and uh, the people who were on team with you and then recognizing that there is bigger than just the four years you were there, you know, whether you were on team for a year or four years, the people who came before you and after you, that legacy is just so strong, especially for people of color. Um, that legacy is stronger and it, it's, it's like, it's the fabric of who we are. So, um, you know, I, I was just really excited to, to see the progress and people coming together for a common good um, and to see that the right decision was made and that things are moving forward still. So again, kudos to you and all the team and anyone who's listening, who was a uh, supporter of that either financially or just in terms of your voice. Um, it was truly appreciated. Uh, last question before the break, Al, I know that, um, you know, given that all the work that you do is all connected um, to to teaching and to, and to community, um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are, you know, as an administrator uh, in New York. Um, we have a new administration that's here now and they're pushing forward. I mean, they just got started, but, you know, things are happening. And, you know, a lot of people are talking that now that the administration is here, you know, no one's marching anymore. No one's doing this. No one's doing that. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement? And, and do you think that uh, this new administration is going to um, calm those things down? Do you think that we're still going to see uh, people continuing to do um, their, their demonstrations and whatnot in the communities, especially in New York? Because, you know, New York is New York. So there's a march <laughs> on every block, depending on the day. Right. <laughs> um, a lot of people, you know, have, have said that since the administration started, that they have that people are dying down, that people are getting comfortable, and that we should still be holding this administration accountable to whatever they promised they were going to do. What are your thoughts on these these comments that people are making nowadays? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that we um, continue to hold like this new administration um, accountable to promises and and to do better. I, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised with you know it's been what like a month <laughs> if that uh, with the things that Biden is 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 saying he wants to do and. You know, I was reading I was reading an article um, yesterday about like black farmers and like the the work the administration is trying to do with that. I'm like, oh, like that does, that wasn't on my docket. <laughs> you know, when I thought about like marching and all that kind of stuff, when I'm up, when I'm outraged, I haven't thought about black farmers. Um, and so there's I think there's the there's so many places for the work to be done, and I'm hopeful and like pleasantly 
I've been pleased so far personally with what I see, what I've seen and heard come out of the administration with respect, with respect to um, racism and and white supremacy. Like Biden speaking about those things in his inauguration speech, I was like, okay, like all right, Joe, like let's go then. Like if you got, you know, that's that's great, and I hope it's not just lip service. And it doesn't it doesn't seem like that, but change takes time. It's not as if he or Kamala Harris can just like, you know, with a stroke of a pen necessarily like change all these things. Um, and so we got to see more than just talk. I think we need to see more than just what's happening right now. And accountability is important. Um, and so I hope we don't, you know, we don't lean back and say, you know, well, him him getting elected in the first, uh, you know, woman and black and South Asian woman to be, you know, to be vice president is enough. It's certainly not enough. Um, but I, I think, I think we'll see some, I think there'll be marching stuff this summer. Like it's not, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not over yet. Right. Um, and that's, that's a, a good thing. Um, but hopefully, you know, the, the backlash and response to it won't be as violent, um, as it was this summer. And, and, you know, for better or worse, the, the insurrection on January 6th has continued to create like, you know, lots of comparisons between Black Lives Matter and, you know, and, and, and the largely white crowd of, of people breaking into the Capitol. So I think we'll, I hope we'll see a really different way in which we handle folks who are fighting for racial justice versus fighting for um, the maintenance of white supremacy. And like, and we'll be able to name it as such in this country. I think it's, you know, we, I think we've had good times that that's a possibility. Um, but if it doesn't happen, we got to get back out there and, and be, um, as, as fervent about it as we were this summer. And, and I think there are many people out there who will continue to do that in New York and beyond. Um, yeah. Folks, if you're just joining us, episode 50 of the D-More Today Show, we're episode 5-0. I'm here with Eldridge Gilbert, class of 05. Currently raising right in Brooklyn. He is the chief schools officer for Coney Island Schools, prep schools, and the president of the M&Page Black Alumni Council. My friend, my track and field buddy, L, I got some quick fire questions for you. Um, you know, you've been someone who has already gone out there and changed the world in your own regard. But if there's one thing that you could pick uh, to make the world a better place, what's that one thing that you would choose to make this world a better place? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think it is, ooh. I, I think I would I would lean into this idea of, of of um, you know eradicating racism and like the racial caste system across the world, right? Like um, color is uh, white supremacy. Maybe that's a better that's probably a better catch-all term for it, right? Like um, because so many of the ills that I think we see across the world and the ones that that definitely impact the lives of people that I'm most intimately connected to are rooted in like the maintenance of of white supremacy and and white supremacist like ideals and culture um, that this permeate like how we operate on the day to day, and I think if you know if that was if if that wasn't the case if we could get rid of that so to speak if we could change that I wonder of the many ripples that that would have on how people interact with each other like can capitalism survive in the same kind of way if we don't have a white white supremacist culture that helps to you know, promote capitalism looking a certain kind of way. Like, can you even have that? And at the same time, like, I don't know. I don't I don't know that you can. I don't know that sexism plays itself out in the same kind of way if you don't have, you know, race put on top of that again, like to maintain supremacies for white supremacy for, especially for white men, right? So 
um, and and white women who play like their own role in that. So I think that would be the thing that I would eliminate, um, and and hopefully we get a lot of good out of that. Uh, but I, I know on an intimate level, it would, it would change many lives, you know, for the for the better if that wasn't the operating system uh, across the world. Yeah, and again, it's funny because you keep saying you don't know. We've never seen a society that doesn't have those two <laughs> things together. So it's like, is it even possible? Yeah, but yeah, I think that would be that would be a game changer for sure. Um, now, L, you know, I, 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 Be More Today is my mantra, it's my thing. You've seen it probably everywhere now in various platforms. Um, I wrote this book, Be More Today, Important Guide to a Better Version of You. And in the book, I just talk about starting things, stopping things, and having goals for your life. And I always ask everybody on the show, what Be More Today means to them, because it's always different. So you, my friend, are the 50th person <laughs> that I've asked this phrase to, five zero for a reason. So Eldridge Gilbert, when you hear the phrase, Be More Today, what does that phrase mean to you? I think, um, you know, to me, it, it it speaks to like the idea of perseverance and 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 resilience and and goals, right? Like it's about striving. And so whenever I see what you're doing, and I see it all the time, whether it's like the racing or like the work that you're doing um, through your church, and like I mean, just like watching these podcasts, the the thing that I always leave with like is a sense of like, okay, El, what are you? What are you trying to do? How can you strive to be better and be more like today? And like in the long term, like it doesn't, it never lands to me as like a singular moment in time. It's about like the long haul, which is why I think perseverance and resilience come up for me because no matter the challenges that you face and there are always challenges, um, how can you be more, be better in spite of them because of them? Um, and that that's a daily process, but and it's, it's both like right now and for the long term. So how can I be a better person today in this moment with like what just happened and then how do I carry that forth into and make that a part of my life on a day-to-day basis um that's what be more today means means to me it's about like that constant striving to be the best version of yourself and maximize your own potential um and then discover more of it as 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 the days progress Mm -hmm. well said sir well said now we're 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 striving into 2021 right now, and everyone's trying to start something new this year. Have already started something. What's one thing that you wanted to start or have already started to do that was new for 2021? Um, so I read this uh, book all about love by Bell Hooks, and so I think the thing that I've been trying to do is is kind of redefine love and so she has like these different she uses like knowledge and care and affection and recognition and respect and trust and commitment like all those things to describe love and and very much takes it outside of like the romantic context and so I'm trying to apply her definition of love to like my relationships with with like all people and I don't mean that in like a crazy way it's not like I'm you know millions of people that I'm out here trying to like love on but the people that I do claim to love and that I feel love towards like how can I use her definition to push myself to like expand that um expand that love and like the way that I think about that love with with those people so so that's my new thing for 2021 <laughs> it is it's, it's been a challenge but 2021 I got the whole year to get better at it um but I think that's that's my that's the new thing that and like increasing my faith and reading more <laughs> mm. no I definitely hear that I'm trying to read myself more and I told myself that uh I'd read at least four books um like one book per quarter last year actually i ended up reading seven which is i'd never happens for me 
So, but continuing that, like you said, the perseverance, that, that striving, continuing to do that this year is going to be the challenge. So I have to just find ways to do that. And yeah, I agree. Love is, love is that thing that, um, you know, if we get rid of racism and have more love in this world, it would be a much better place in general. So I think on the right track with that as well. Um, any final tips you want to share with uh, aspiring teachers, aspiring principals, um, anyone who is in, in line to either get the MBA or has the MBA or any uh, aspiring people who are interested in being more involved in, in a page council or anything that's community related? Yeah, um, I would say to the educators out there, whether it's like the teacher role or the principal role, um, my advice would be to like take care of, like figure out your balance between like taking care of yourself and being there for the constituency, the community that you serve. Um, and to, to recognize that it's, it takes a lot of mental fortitude and brilliance to be an excellent educator. You know, we get a lot of like pats on the back for like being noble, like, oh, you, you teach and that's like, that's a great thing, but it's also an incredibly challenging like task that very intelligent people do extremely well. And it's not, it's not just a nice thing to do. It is, um, it is the work of our future. And so carry that with you as you go through. Um, your challenges along like alongside finding that balance um i think that's super important and not something that i had grasped early on especially and for people who want to be a principal i would just say like take your time uh unfortunately educational inequities are not going anywhere and so i feel like i became a principal really quickly and when i was probably like not as mature <laughs> um as it could have been and that if i would have had someone tell me to slow down and take my time i would have been i think a more successful principal um for folks who want to be involved in ipc come on in like there's room for you we got something for you <laughs> all you got to do is find us you can email me <laughs> um you know, check out the facebook page like there's there's space for you there's there is a way for you to contribute to black black community both at Brown and the alumni community and so any way you want to do that just um, reach out and we will find a space for you to, to a venue for you to do that and if you want to mentor a student we got folks we got undergrads in Harambe house and just like around the way on campus who would love to be in love to be connected to a current to an alum um, yeah and I just you know I think the the community service piece is just about I think finding your passion and then finding the time to give back to, you know, to the things that have given to you. And so there's there's something for all of us to do, right? There's always a way for us to contribute outside of our our, our day to day. And you know, um, finding your passion is finding the passion and the time is the way to do that sustainably. Um, so that's not a really good tip, but that's something I think about. Uh, that's a great tip. That's a great tip. Uh, where can folks find you, follow you on social media or otherwise? Um, you can find me on Instagram. <laughs> I'm not very active on Instagram, but, or I'm not cool on Instagram, but like Eldridge Gilbert three. Um, and then, uh, I'm on Facebook as well. Um, and yeah, those are, those are two more ways. I'm not, I'm not savvy enough to keep up with Twitter and all that kind of stuff anymore. Uh, so really just Instagram and Facebook. Awesome. Eldridge Gilbert, thank you so much for being on the show. Episode 50 is in the books, and it's all thanks to you. So continue your great work, and um, thank you so much for being here with us for this 50th episode. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. I, I'm honored and appreciate uh, being, being chosen for this episode. And folks, do not forget the quotation from today by Malcolm X, the future belongs to those who prepare for it today. 
as you heard from Al, his story is very uh, inspiring, you know, to do so much at such a young age, literally. Principals usually in their older ages. Um, he's done so much uh, in such a short period of time and give him back in, in the same regard. He's making the future better for those who are coming after him. And it belongs to those who prepare for it today. Today is the day to get out there and make sure that you're handling your business. If it's something that you do want to get done school-wise, work-wise, professionally, get it done. No excuses. And um, let's continue to support each other and use our community to help us to get there. It's really about coming together and 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 each one reach one. Um, he's shown that to, from Teach for America all the way to where he is right now. And I think his story is is inspiring in the sense that it makes us really think that we can change the world one person at a time. So get out there and make sure that you do your same thing and you're part of the world and be more today. Uh, continue to watch us on all media platforms, bemoretoday.com for the book, the podcasts, uh, workouts, everything's on there, folks. Just continue to support us as well. If you want to send us a message or send Ella a message through us, you can do that as well. Be more today. It's be more number two day at gmail.com or any of our social media platforms as always. The Worship Life Podcast continues to go on every single Wednesday. So check that out as well. My boy T. Bell putting down some great words for encouraging you every single week. And for those of you who want to continue to follow us, we're going to be here on all platforms. So subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Really appreciate it. All right. And as I always say, folks, have a good day. Have a good night. Have a great life. And continue. Take your steps to greatness to be the best version of you. Peace. Peace.